I'm going to start and invite you to jump in and make comments on anything and everything and take it the direction as the Lord leads you. Father, we just come before you even now in the name of Jesus. Father, we love your presence. And Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence in this room. And just in our weakness and our frailty as humans, we need your help to go forward in the things that we're talking about. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to give a very brief context for what I'm sharing over the last couple weeks, and if you haven't been here, you're gonna miss some of the context, so just forgive me on the front end of that because I'm gonna be brief. I talked about uh, Isaiah 19. I'm not gonna go into that again and how important that is in what's gonna happen in this generation, I believe, across the globe. The conflict and the unity that will be happening in the Middle East as depicted in Isaiah 19, an end time chapter. And the idea is John 17, the greatest miracle of human history is the unification, the unity of the people of God. But it's not just unity. Jesus said, a unity at the level that I and the Father are walking in unity. That's incomprehensible to me. It's never been done. 1% of that probably has been fulfilled in church history. But at the very time of that supernatural miracle of the unity of the people of God globally, we're talking about profound unity, a unity that is supernatural. Again, the greatest miracle of human history will be that, corporate miracle. At the very same time that's happening, Matthew 24, we covered it the other day, Jesus said there will be a betrayal culture. I don't want to call it a betrayal movement, but betrayal among the body of Christ will come to a level never seen before in history. At the very same time that the deepest unity of history is taking place. So as people say, there's going to be a great harvest and a great falling away. Which is it? Both. <coughs> there's going to be a unity Profound unity movement, that's kind of stronger than a unity movement, a supernatural work, but there'll be a betrayal culture, not just in the secular culture, within the body of Christ. So the whole body of Christ is gonna be in a trajectory one way or the other. Some will be kind of stuck in the middle for a while, but everybody will be moving one direction or the other in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years plus. Well, we talked about Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet Zechariah has this vision of one of God's leaders, Joshua. He was the leader in many ways over the prayer and worship movement of his generation. He was over the temple and all the singers and musicians and everything, what, all these things. Satan comes before God and says, that man is disqualified and he accuses him. And the man had real deficiencies and some real failures. But accusation always exaggerates them. And the bigger problem was not just he was going to accuse Joshua, the leader, to others. It was going to get inside of Joshua. The biggest problem of accusation isn't just that others accuse you, is that you accuse you. And then when you accuse you, you become a prime suspect or whatever, not suspect, a prime vehicle to accuse others. Accusers are the people that feel accused. 
going on, going on about that for a long time, but you already understand that. The Lord speaks up and says, the Lord rebuke you, the angel of the Lord. I've got a different narrative over this man. You have an accusation narrative. I've got a divine narrative. Here's what God says about him. And I'm canceling out his disqualification, and I'm recommissioning him. I'm re uh, uh, putting new robes on him, and I'm giving him even greater privilege and stature in the spirit. And I mentioned how Zechariah 3, in our near 40 years that I've been in, the, in this city with different prophetic guys, Zechariah 3 and 4 is by far the passage that has been given to us in supernatural ways, dreams and visions, far beyond any other passage. You know, we got Song of Solomon 8.6, we got Hephzibah, we got Psalm 27.4, this one thing, we got that twice. We've received this about seven or eight times. That's... That's a staggering implications. I'm not talking about somebody got touched in their spirit. I'm talking about God supernaturally confirmed it. And he said, in essence, this family must walk in that to walk in their fullness. And I mean, the 99% were going, yes, we're on. The consensus is yes, we want that. Well, it's not just that we have the divine narrative for ourselves. That's where it starts. We have divine narrative for one another. But the problem is the one another are people often that mistreated you, friends and family members. You know the verse Jesus says, love your enemies. Well, most of us don't have enemies at the level Jesus was talking about. We have friends and family members and people in the marketplace that we know well that mistreated us. And it hurts us. And he goes, I want you to do good and see what I see about them. And that is the challenge of history to get into God's narrative of believers, familiar believers, that have actually mistreated us. As long as they're enemies, they're far away and they don't have a face. But it's friends and family members up close and personal, and the Lord says, do you see my narrative for yourself, and do you see my narrative for them? This is the key to the John 17 unity miracle, the family healing miracle. Well, I'm gonna give a, a couple more points here, and Isaac, jump in anytime. Okay. <laughs> he is so fun. You know, parentheses, I know, stop. I've known you since you were Peewee'sville. How, how old were you? Six. Anyway, I love you. Anyway, go back to this. It's just so fun with him up here. Okay. Peewee'sville, you can write that down and look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> if we're going to, not if, we are going to, I'm positive, we are going to mature in love. Hundreds of millions are going to mature in love, but the pathway to maturing in love, it's not the only thing, is in cultivating, it takes time to get it, God's perspective of the other person in the body of Christ that we're close to that mistreated us. We've got to get into God, seeing what God sees about them. It's like, it's hard enough to see what God sees about me, but to see it about a guy I've labored with, a guy in my person, my family, the person that I've been close to that's betrayed me, that's, uh, that's tough. The Lord says it has to be. But when you see what, how I've forgiven you, how I have overlooked and forgiven your weaknesses and efficiencies, et cetera. Okay, I'm gonna take you to this verse, profound verse. This is the verse of the day for me in terms of focus. 
1 Samuel 16, verse 7, if you'll put that on the PowerPoint. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The prophet Samuel comes up before David's, to David's father, King David's father. He goes, I want to tell you something you don't know. The Lord does not see like man sees. We all know this verse. This is profound. This is the pathway to John 17, supernatural unity. It starts here. He goes, man looks at, he focuses on the outward appearance, the secular narrative. And I don't mean secular in, the, in a horrible way. Just what you can see unaided by the Holy Spirit is what I mean. Man naturally focuses on outward things, what he can see unaided by the Holy Spirit. But he goes, I want you to tell, I want to tell you something, God doesn't see that way. Beloved, this is radical. Though the verse is famous, this is profound. This is the pathway to John 17. He goes, God looks at the heart. He sees those thousands and millions of 10-second conversations of that believer who's stumbling and tripling, tripping, who's trying to sincerely walk with God. He says, I see the 10,000 times 10,000 short prayers and conversations of their heart. You don't see it, I do. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul talks about this. He taps right into this. He says, I want you to judge nothing before the time. Don't judge, meaning don't come to final conclusions is the point. This is talking about conclusions about people. It's more than just an opinion, because a judgment could be an opinion. Don't, don't uh, judge anything before the time, before the Jesus returns. Why? He's going to reveal the counsels of the heart, the motives of the heart, the million short little movements of the heart over 50 years. He's going to reveal them. Nobody can see them. The heart that says, Lord, I want to obey. I'm yours. I'm crying out, lying on your bed, driving, walking. Those million, 10-second little conversations or thought processes that express sincere intention to obey. And the Lord says, when that happens, I'm going to actually shock the guy. I'm going to praise him because he doesn't even count those movements of his heart as important. He goes, I'm going to actually give him praise. I'm going to God's not going to praise him, worship him. He's going to affirm him. Some of you are going to get the shock of your life on that day when the million, 10-second little conversations and thought processes you had before God actually matter to him. But the problem is the person that's annoyed at you, he doesn't even care about those. He didn't know about them, doesn't care about them. They don't count in his evaluation of you. But Paul says, don't draw conclusions. Those things count in God's evaluation of a person. Well, let's look at the outward appearance. I want to give you three real, just so rapid fire of the secular narrative, what the outward appearance is. It's the facts. It's based on facts. It's the facts. I'm just making up this number. It's the five or 10 main good things you've accomplished over 10 or 20, 30, 40 years. Those are facts about your life. I mean, you graduated with degrees. You built this business. You had this family. You did cool. I mean, accomplished so cool. Those five or 10 main things, that's a made up number. The facts about your outward life is the five or 10 main failures you've had in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. 
One goes, oh, I wish it was five or ten. The other point of the secular narrative, it's the way people evaluate people, the five or ten deficiencies. Those aren't failures, deficiencies in their personality, their leadership skills, things they don't have abilities in. The Lord says, you look at those few things they accomplished, those few failures, and the facts about their deficiencies, and you've summed them up. The problem is, that's not how I read a person's life. Those facts are important, but here's the key. They are not, here's the key, the primary determining factor of God's narrative for your life or their life. See, we want to talk facts, what they accomplished. The Lord says, some of the most accomplished people I don't call to certain things. Oh, and we want to talk facts. Here's how they failed. The Lord says, some of the biggest failures I've called to a destiny beyond anything you could imagine. Some of the people with the biggest deficiencies you can't imagine they're going to lead this and that. You think, what? It's not possible. The Lord says, I, I really don't interpret people's lives like you do. This is what God's telling the prophet Samuel. Now, the divine narrative of a person's life, it's your life, but it's the guy that's mistreated you that you, I'm talking about friends and family. I'm talking about in the church, in the marketplace, that guy. And you're going, ugh. The divine narrative of her, his or her life is based on the profound reality that God sees that woman or man different than you do. That's a profound, he goes, I don't see like you. How, what's the divine narrative based on? I gave three things of the secular narrative, a few facts of our good accomplishments, the few facts of our failure, the few facts of our deficiencies, and those are the facts, and the Lord says, those are only a few of the facts. They're not the primary determining factor of my narrative. Yeah, I calculate them, but that's not the main conversation I'm having about that person. What's the divine narrative? He looks at the sovereign calling over the man, the woman, the boy, the girl. Now, we can't always know that, but God knows he's got a sovereign calling he's working towards that we often are not even aware of it, but it really matters to God. Number two, he looks at the sincere motives of that person. And number three, he, he looks at his interpretation of their accomplishments, failures, and deficiencies because his interpretation of them is different than ours. And the Lord says, between my sovereign call, the million 10-second conversations they've had with me over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, sincerely signing up to love me in ways that nobody else knows, and the way that I'm interpreting they're gifting. I don't interpret like you. They're incredibly gifted, but that's not what it, that is not what moves me. David's brothers, this is about King David. He was boy number eight. His brothers were so much more accomplished than he was. David was tending the sheep, which in modern day, he was mowing the grass all day long. His brothers were accomplished. The Lord says, that's good. But that's not how I call people just because they're accomplished. They got degrees. They got accomplishments. Those are good, I like those, but those don't necessarily become the primary determining factor in God's narrative of your life. David, he said, he's got a heart. I can see his heart, his heart's pounding for me. He's trying to obey me, though it doesn't look like it. I remember once, 1985, I gave a sermon on a Sunday morning. I remember it vividly. I picked out identified the 10 sins in David's life in First and Second Samuel that are, David probably won't like this when I first meet him. He might go, hey, hey, 
You think I forgot that sermon? Or maybe he says, oh, okay. I don't think anyone's ever picked all 10 and laid them out one time. It was so bad, they almost took David's Psalms out of children's church curriculum. I mean, they just wanted to boycott David. No, I mean, if you take those at face value, you go, uh-uh, no. The facts are he failed. The facts are there's deficiencies in his fathering. There's deficiencies in his leadership. There's deficiencies in a number of things that created some problems. Lord says, I called it. I see his heart. He says here in 1 Samuel 13, I sought for a man after my own heart, talking about David. He's about 17 years old. And I've commanded him to be commander. I've already sovereignly chosen him. His brothers are more gifted. They might have less failures. They may have different deficiencies, less or more, but I've calculated it all, and my narrative is that about David. I'm gonna end with this, the next 60 seconds. God's narrative is shocking. We gotta get into the right conversation. The one that promotes God's narrative of the person that's bugging us. We, it's so easy to get in a conversation about the person, but it's not the right one. What's well, the convert? It's the facts. I know what they accomplished, so let's do something real exciting. I know how they failed, so let's really beat up on them. I know their deficiencies, so let's look the other way. The Lord says, those facts are important, but they're not the primary thing. It's my narrative, my call, and we gotta get into it. Abraham, here's the, now I'm starting the 60 seconds over. Here's the 60 seconds. <laughs> Romans 4, I just love this verse. Romans 4, the first person I ever heard preach it was John Wimber, you know, 30 years ago. It says, Romans 4, verse 20, it says, Abraham did not waver. I remember John Wimber, he goes, in my house, that's called wavering. <laughs> Abraham had some, a couple big mess-ups. 2,000 years, the divine storyline is he didn't waver. Like, What? The Lord says, no, through the editing process of my personality and my grace, that how I cancel out failures and deficiencies and things that others don't because of who I am, he didn't waver through my editing process of grace. That's my narrative. Who got into that narrative while Abraham was alive? I don't know. Well, David's, let's look at Acts chapter 13. We, here's the other verse, Acts 13, verse 22 and verse 36. I mean, this is... This is a 1,000 years after David. Paul is preaching. He didn't hear my 10 sins of David's life sermon. Paul never heard that. But here's what he said about David a 1,000 years later. Acts chapter 13, you got it right in front of you. Verse 22 first, then we'll look at verse 36. God raised up David. Here's what God testified about David. I found David. He will do all of my will. I went... Now, I've taught the life of David, I guess, seven or eight times in 40 years. I go, all of your will? Most? Or it's just through my editing process. My narrative is he did all my will. Leave it there. Well, the facts are, the Lord says, yeah, but I interpret his successes, his accomplishments, his failures and deficiencies different than you do. I say he did all. Wow. That guy, that woman, that person, that brother, that sister loves the Lord, not doing great, not treating you well. 
The Lord, that doesn't mean that everything is fine, but the Lord says, you've got to get into my narrative about them or you'll never get on the trajectory of the John 17 miracle of the family unity. Then he goes on to verse 36. He served the purpose of God in his generation. He did it. I go, if that's how you read people, I want to read people this way. I don't want to just read me this way. I do first. <laughs> I want to read you this way. And I believe this is a critical part on the way to the John 17. It's the fact that God, it goes back to the, to the 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, when we started with God does not see like man sees. Man looks at the outward things, the facts of their outward accomplishments, failures, and deficiencies, and summarizes them and God says, no, I look at my sovereign calling, I look at the million movements of their heart, and I interpret those accomplishments, failures, and deficiencies actually different than you do. To you, they're this big or that little. To me, they're different. They don't have the same weight to me they have to you. Get into my narrative for that person. So I'm, as a community, we want to be intentional about getting in conversations that promote the divine narrative so that we can grow in family love and unity. Amen. Here's what's striking me about that. Um, you know, when we consider David's life in his list of 10 sins, you know, and the call to see one another in accordance with a different narrative as you're talking, I'm just, I'm thinking of Bathsheba having to buy into the narrative of the Lord about her own husband. Like, think about this for a second. This is real. You know, every marital conflict, there's always the big guns that come out in the argument, right? You know, David's around the palace. He's kind of left his pile of ephods around. You know, Bathsheba comes home. She's stressed. And then, boom, conflict hits. I mean, the big guns that Bathsheba has over David. I mean, he, you know, she's like, why didn't you clean up your stuff? And he's just like, well, I'm the king. And you know what? I don't know. Get the concubine to do it or whatever. Like, and then it starts to escalate, escalate. And then she just looks at him. And she's like, you killed my husband and took me. And now here I am. I have to be your wife. I mean, that is some big guns. And what's striking me about that, though that's, you know, kind of humorous, but, and a little bit too real for she some of us. She probably wouldn't appreciated this sermon so much. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm grappling with, though, is the reality that in heaven, I mean, that statement, you know, when, when the Lord gave that to Luke and he wrote that in Acts, Bathsheba was in heaven. And she's in agreement with the heart of God over her own husband. And she's able to see through the accusation beyond all of the pile of sins and garbage and filth. And she is, you know, because she's redeemed in heaven, like, she's able to agree with the narrative of God. Now, most of you are not married to your former spouse's murderer. You said most aren't? Most are not, yeah. Good to know. You, you just, you never know, you know, you just, you gotta, you never know who's listening online or whatever. <laughs> But I mean, this is a profound reality because, you know, we, we look at the story of David and the, and the list of his sins, and we, we would do to him what we would do to any leader, political leader, religious leader, you know, evangelical, da-da-da-da. We would say, they're out. They're disqualified. They cannot accomplish 
the will of God for their generation because there's too much sin. There's too much darkness. Or deficiencies. They, lack, are, lack of they are deficient. Yeah, they're not great with people. They're cranky without coffee. And they're, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of these deficiencies that all of us carry. I mean, to buy into this narrative of God's redemptive power and the power of the cross. You were talking this morning uh, just briefly to me about how love covers a multitude of sins. I want you to, you know, if, if the Lord triggers something with that. But I mean, I'm thinking of this reality. Love covers a multitude of sins and the enemy wants us accusing one another, disqualifying one another. The, Lord wa- the enemy wants us accusing ourselves, disqualifying ourselves, and actually inflating our sins and our failures and our deficiencies as more powerful than the redemptive work of the cross and more powerful than the blood of Jesus. I mean, when you think about it that way, it is incredibly arrogant to buy into that accusatory narrative. But anyway, love covers a multitude of sins. Well, the, the situ- I shared it a couple of weeks ago. It was this guy who profoundly betrayed me, and then I find out some real negative stuff about his life that's really real. And then the Lord speaks through Paul Cain, the first, I think it's 1 Peter 4, 8, says, above all, above all, above all. That's how the verse starts, but he pronounces it, love covers a multitude of a man's sins. Cover him. That's the Lord's word, cover him. That's the Lord's word, cover him. And, and the point I was saying is, uh, we were talking earlier this morning, is that a lot of folks, they uncover to punish, to get back. I'll get you straight. It's just the truth. What the truth about this man's life, I'm thinking of this man right now, the truth of, of his life was there were 90% of the truth is not about that. The truth of his life of his life is he loved Jesus. He talked thousands of people out of sin. The truth is he cried out to the Lord. The truth is he did many, many good things. That's the truth of his life. A lot of folks think the truth is the deficiency or the failure. Beloved, that's 5% of the truth of your life. The truth of your life is the million times that you've said things to God and what you've done with your hands. and how, That's the truth. Uh, one lady came to me and says, I just want to tell the truth. I said, well, tell the whole truth. Take six hours and tell me about the guy, the good things, and then give me your five-minute negative. If you want to tell the whole truth, I'll listen. And while you're at it, since you're so into the truth, yes, she goes, I'm so into the truth. Tell me the truth about you and start with the 5% negative and then give me the six hours later next. She goes, well, I go, you're not really in the truth. This is payback. (laughs) That's what you're doing. And you're, and you're, you're applauding yourself as loving the truth. Give me the six hours. This was years ago. I remember the conversation vividly. Give me the six hours of the good things he's done in 30 years. You go, I don't want to do that. Well, that's the truth. You said you're into the truth, aren't you? And then again, if you're into the truth, tell me your truth, but start with the five negative, the 5% negative because you're 95% amazing too. I mean, that's the truth. But uh, I was talking, we were talking this morning about loving enemies. And the problem with the phrase, love your enemy, is that's so generic and that's been on so many posters. It doesn't move most people. Most people in this room don't think of very many people's enemies. They think, and Jesus, you know, Jesus might say, oh, you think my terms aren't right? My terms are right, little guy. You don't add to my terms. 
He spoke about that at the day where people are going to be murdering one another and that loving your enemy is going to be a whole nother level. But at this hour in our nation, it's about the people that mistreat us. And it's about doing good to them, covering their sin, blessing them before God. And I don't mean lying about them, blessing them before people, but finding the good virtue. And I don't mean go over and on and on and on about it, but mention the good virtue, uh, virtue. Jesus said, bless the person to people and pray to the person before God and do good. Give them some money every now and then. Like, oh, I'm not talking about the enemies because we don't have enemies. I'm talking about the friends or family members that mistreat you. Find the one thing you totally buy in that's a virtue and say that behind their back and don't say the other thing behind their back. Jesus said, if you do that, and you talk to me, I've prayed for my enemies, and I tell you the first couple times, oh, well, a couple like a thousand is what I mean. I was like, <laughs> don't bless him, bless his kids. How's that? We'll start with the kids and work back. I couldn't get it out. Like, what? And after a while, what I found out is by blessing him to people. I, I spoke the virtue to and I've got lot, uh, lots of folks that have betrayed me. Many of us do that are my age in their 60s. You know, been in the kingdom 40, 50 years. We've got long time. Everyone has betrayed relationship, relations that betrayed. So we've had to do this a lot. But uh, when I find the virtue and speak that instead of the failure to people, then when I talk to God and I ask God's blessing and favor and then I do a couple of nice acts well, give them a little money or just do some things to help them a little bit. Do good to them. Probably didn't help them at all, really, but it liberated my heart. I was the guy getting set free. And sometime down the road, when I felt tender feelings for these various ones, or everyone's a different story, it's like, I got you. I was after your heart. But until you operated in the opposite spirit, with your words to other people about them, your words to me about them, and some of your resources, you couldn't get your own heart free. I'm after your heart, my beloved young, young uh, man, boy of God. You know, I'm in my 20s and 30s, and I'm still not there yet. I'm still working on that, but I know, I tell you, this thing is real, and it works, and it's the Zechariah 3 divine narrative, not the accusatory narrative. It is what's going to lead us to the family miracle. And it involves covering their sins, their failures. It is so easy to point out the four failures of that, that guy, that girl, that person. The Lord says, no, find the three virtues, two of them if that's all you can find, and say those. And I know the other stuff. Leave it with me. Leave it with me. I got a question um, just back on what you were saying about the love covers a multitude of sins. So. First Peter 4, 8, yeah. Last year, I did a message on First Peter 4, just those few verses, and what's, what's interesting here, first as a comment, is that the word cover actually has to do with stretching out like a rubber band, stretching your heart further than you're comfortable with it going. And it, 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 it uh, portrays this tension within the human soul that we have of, all right, here are the limitations of my love, and that word cover in 1 Peter 4, 8 has to do with stretching beyond that. And we do that by the grace of God and the redemptive work of the cross. We actually need a divine love to get into the narrative that, that Mike is talking about. But I wanna bring up a, a point on this because we live in a culture where right now in society, it is a premier sin to cover or cover up. 
and everything has to be leaked. I mean, that's the nature of and society that's the right now. Culture. Yeah, yeah, I mean, everything from the government to what the person did to what the, our boss did to our spouse to our kid. Every time we're mistreated or something happens that's evil, it's like let's wiki leak everything. So how do? Here's my question: How do we walk in the tension of? covering a multitude of sins, but not covering up to abusers and, right. you know, where there really is true evil that's being perpetuated. Like, how do we walk in that tension? No, that, that's, that's very good. The, the, the key issue, we talked about this this morning for a while, is the predator. The person, if you are uncovering to keep them from a pattern of doing this to other people and they're a predator, that's one thing. If you're doing it to pay them back and to punish them, and there's not a redemptive reason. There's people aren't growing in love by the uncovering. You're trying to get a personal advantage over the person by the uncovering, and you're venting, you're punishing, you're not stopping a predator. If you're stopping a predator, that's different. But the thing today in the culture, it's, again, it's the betrayal culture. Nobody calls it betrayal, it's called speaking the truth, being real. So as long as the guy starts the conversation with, just being real, then that's his permission to give the 5% of the deficiencies or the failures of that person because he's just being real. And what a virtue if you're real. Brother, you're Authentic, real. Authentic, genuine. You're a betrayer too. Uh, you're a betrayer. <laughs> you, you mean well, sort of. I didn't mean you. You were just a, a, a mannequin there for a second. Okay, you too. Okay. <laughs> Social distance. Anyway, so anyway. <laughs> so if, if you're getting an advantage by sh uh, showing their deficiencies. A deficiency is a lack of ability or, or your personality. That's not a failure. Or a failure, if you're getting a personal advantage or you're punishing them or you're venting because you got anger, that's the wrong, that's not a kingdom response. If you're saving that guy over there, that business from getting ripped off by that Ponzi scheme, that's a different issue. But then you tell it to the right people in the right spirit the right way. You go to the person in private, and you say it with a spirit of redemption. You're trying to win love. You're not venting or gaining an advantage. That's the huge difference. So in uh, Zechariah 3, back to this, you opened up with this passage. Take a look at this down in verse 4. This is uh, standing out to me because we're talking about getting in the right redemptive narrative. And I think there's three areas where we need this redemptive area or this redemptive narrative evidenced in our life. There's three key areas. Number one is we don't want to be accusing God. And our hearts are prone to accusing God. Most of the time. Break that down a little bit. Yeah, I think most of the time that we're, that I am accusing God, it's not because of what God is doing, it's because of what he's not doing. It's because of the pain of delay. It's wow. because I didn't get healed the moment that I prayed for it, I didn't get the breakthrough in finances, the moment I, I didn't get the opportunity I wanted, the moment that I wanted God to do something, I was relating to him like a divine gumball machine. You know, I wanted to put my 25 cent prayer in and immediately, woo, outspins the answer to my prayer and I just, my life is enriched and made better. And so an accusation rises in the human heart against God, that's area number one. And area number wait, wait, two. I want to stop again. Just one more minute. Because of what he doesn't do, the delay. Just say that again. I mean, you said it, but just repeat it again. Yeah, I, I, 
Again, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I, th- oh, okay. I think there's, I think that there's apostolic, accusation. Apostolic prayers will shift history, yeah. right? It's one of well, when you get into, you know, like philosophy and, and talking about God and the existence of God, one of the main accusations is, is why would a righteous, powerful, holy God, why would he allow evil? And that, that argument kind of cuts right to it. But to put it in terms that I can understand, I think that the main accusation against humanity is if God can, why doesn't he? And when we bring that down to our personal lives, that's where a lot of our accusation against the Lord lies, is that he bears long. I mean, he's so patient. That's why it should be a tip-off to us in the New Testament. We're so often called to forbearance, long-suffering, perseverance, patience. I mean, we just kind of skip over those things, like, yeah, be nicer to your kids and be nicer to people, be more patient. But the Lord's going, this is going to be one of the main accusations that stings your heart in your relationship with me is that I will bear so long. I am so patient. I will wait for a long, long, long time. And so then, you know, the second area of accusation is the accusation against ourselves, where we accuse ourselves and disqualify ourselves. And the enemy sows lies into our minds that that we believe that we're hypocrites, that we're hopeless, we're too far gone, God's not gonna use us, he's gonna use them, but there's no way he could use me. There's no way that he would wanna have fellowship with me and, and relational, intimate, you know, deep fellowship and love and enjoyment with me because I see in the mirror what everyone else sees. I see my brokenness, I see my deficiencies, I see my shortcomings, and when we look in the mirror, you know, we want there to be Bible verses, redemptive ones that flood our minds, that we would believe what God truly sees about us. So we accuse ourselves, and then that spills over to accusing everyone around us, what, what Mike is talking about, and overemphasizing the deficiencies and weaknesses of people around us. But I want us to look at this, verse four, and Zechariah three, because this is standing out to me, just Mike, as you're sharing And the Lord answers, he spoke to those that were before him, and he says, take away the filthy garments from him. And then he says this, he says, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with rich robes. And I believe that to get into this narrative where we're not accusing God, we're not accusing ourselves, we're not accusing one another, is to see And if you take that call to see and you take it to the clothing in the rich robes, the fullness of that is Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when the bride is displayed in front of all of human history and she's clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. And the the point that's between that, between this call to see and to shift our narrative And the ultimate destination, which is clothed in righteous robes, in fellowship and intimacy with God forever, is the cross of Christ. And we have to get a vision of the cross where we see the redemptive power of his suffering. We see his wounds. We see his blood that was poured out. And we see it as a demonstration of God's love and his affection toward us not just as a judicial act that made us clean and it's written in a book somewhere and yay, but we feel defiled, we feel left alone, we still feel accused, though legally we're made righteous before the Lord. The Lord wants to get us into the narrative of his affection 
and the power, and that when we feel that accusation rise in our heart, we go to the cross and we say, what do I see there? And as the blood of that bridegroom pours out and washes us, we say, I am your delight, I am your beloved, and not only am I, but my enemy, he is your delight, he is your beloved, because that same blood that washes me has washed them. And the same blood that's washed me has washed the denomination down the road that I don't agree with. It's washed my home church and my pastor and my teacher and my leader. That same blood of the bridegroom that was opened up at Calvary is available for all of us. And when you go before Jesus and you meditate on his wounds, I've been just in this for the last few months, meditating on the wounds of Christ on the cross and my accusations against the Lord, others, and myself, they just get washed away. I can't stand before the cross and that powerful statement of love and acceptance and still accuse my brother. I can't do it, it's impossible. And I wanna call us into this as a part of getting into this right narrative. I wanna call us into this. Get into the routine, get into the spiritual discipline of going to Calvary and beholding the suffering servant and his love and his affection that pours forth over us. And I wanna tell you that it will change your conversation. It will change the way you pray. It will change the way you give. It will change the way you complain. You can't go to the cross and remain the same. So anyways, see, that was the word that triggered that from verse four. Yeah, because that's what the Lord said. Tell him to see it. And we've got to see it because the bigger problem is the accusation, the condemnation we feel against ourselves. Because when, when my emotional bandwidth is absolutely filled up with managing how bad I feel about me, it's real easy to feel bad about you. Because yeah. my bandwidth is just full. I'm overloaded with, I'm not, it's not good. It's not. I don't have an overflow to look at somebody else graciously when I can't see the grace of God for me. I mentioned that uh, in terms of our assignment, I was talking about my own assignment, but many of us are wearing this together, that I'm thinking next 10, 15, 20 years, the, the things I'm locked into is, is uh, uh, locally here in America, the social tensions. And we have got to do this Zechariah 3, this divine narrative towards other believers in the social context. I'm not talking about the black and whites out in the secular community. I'm talking about the black and white Hispanic Asian pastors who love Jesus, who are bugged by one another. I'm talking about that. We gotta get into within the body. We've gotta do this with one another in the body. And if we do it in the body, it will touch the culture. A lot of folks are skipping the body and going right to the cultural problem. I'm locked into believers doing it to each other. And it's not just black, white, it's white and white. It's all, it's believers. That's first the social tension. The second one is the, I'll call it the denominations, but it's a lot of churches today are non-denominational, but I'm putting us all in the same category. The different ministry streams. You know, there are one or 2,000 churches, congregations in the city, some number like that. There's, there's so many different ministries around America, and many of them are against one another. Not everybody against everybody, but lots of ministries have one or two denominations or groups they're really against. We gotta look at each other and do this and say, you know, we don't agree on this, 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 this. I don't agree with some of the stories I heard about you. I'm suspicious of you, but I've gotta get into the divine narrative of who you are. 
because we've got to move to John 17 together. And it's way, if we don't do that, we can't do it to the culture. And then the third one, the big one, is the Isaiah 19 in the Middle East, the Egyptian, the Arabs, and the Jews. I'm talking about the Egyptians that love Jesus and the Messianic Jews who love Jesus don't like each other. They don't like the Arab believers who love Jesus. I mean, obviously some do, but I'm talking about it's the same worldwide, all of us. So it's the social tensions in America, believers. I'm thinking me of pastors. And then it's denominations or ministry streams. And then it's the ultimate one is the Isaiah 19. And I'm saying, it's not like today we got to solve it, but we got to work this muscle in our families and friends. And I've, we've all got plenty of practice material to work on. We got to work this muscle. We got a Matthew 5, We got to say things to God different about that person who's in the faith who bugs us. We got to say things to people. It says, bless them. Find the virtue or two and say those. And then we got to do a couple of things for them where we give our resource, our time, our money, our energy, our words, whatever. We give our resource a little bit to them and it frees our spirit. And if we practice that muscle this year, next year, the next year, the next years, I mean, we can still work on those other ones. We're going to have a different view of the denominations, the ones that don't like us, we can like them. The, the races, the churches that don't like you, you can like them because you like you, because you know God likes you and you know God likes them. I can like you if I know God likes you and then I know he likes me. It gets a lot easier. And then this, I want to contribute to that Isaiah 19 thing over in the Middle East, which is the epicenter of the end time glory of God move, but that's bigger than today. So I'm going to end my with this, and then maybe we'll have a ministry time. I'm, I said this like 15 yeah, let's minutes ago. let's have the worship team go ahead and come. Our goal, I have this written down, is to, I ended this a few minutes ago, is to engage in the right conversation with one another that promotes God's narrative in that person's life. So when you and me and him and her are talking about him, we want to get in the right conversation that promotes the narrative in that guy's life. And it's not, the narrative isn't, their failures, their deficiencies, and even their great accomplishments. Those can be sometimes are relevant in the conversation. But the Lord's saying, the main conversation is my narrative. Are you leaning into that? Well, I just want the facts. Well, do the 95% facts, not just the 5% negative. I just want the truth. Well, do you want your negative truth? Let's do this thing together. And so all over the room, let's just stand up for a moment, and I want us to think Everyone's got two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people <laughs> that are in your space causing you some turmoil. Let's say, that's a soft way to say it. They're mistreating you a little bit. They're just bugging you at least in a way that really is not good. And if that's, we'll bring it down to that, but that's the group we're talking about. And it's so easy to tell the folks next to you, they are, and I'm just, no, 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 catch that, catch that. I gotta get you ready for the bigger drama coming. <laughs> Do some push-ups right now. Learn how to bless. Find the virtue and say it. Tell me things about them. Talk to me about them. And give them a little bit of your resource, your time, energy, whatever. Father, we just bring that person, those two people, those three people. And Lord, I've preached this for years, but I am confessing my neglect and failure in this, even recently. I'm confessing I need to continue to do more of those spiritual push-ups by speaking to people, speaking to you, and doing things for those people. 
And Lord, I just say before you, forgive me, having known this message for many years that I'm still not in the place of maturity in it I should be by now. And all over the room, let's just acknowledge that in our hearts. And Lord, I wanna go there. I wanna be a part of that John 17 miracle in Kansas City where the body of Christ loves the different ministries and the different races in the church. Lord, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna see for real. I don't mean hype stuff. I don't mean just saying it because it sounds good. I wanna feel what you feel about them. And I wanna start by feeling about those four or five or six people in my life that are in my face causing me trouble. And Lord, I just say in the name of Jesus, have mercy on me and help me. And I commit myself all over the room, just say in your own heart, I, I'm committing to do this. But this thing evaporates in 12 hours. You gotta recommit. You gotta do this like a million times. It's like peeling an onion. It's one layer at a time and you got tears every step of the way. But there's a million little layers that come off on this. You gotta do it day after day. And Lord, we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, I ask for grace. And I just take authority over the spirit of condemnation and accusation, attacking our own hearts in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Help me to love with open arms like you do.